Hello, and welcome to Join the Conversation. I'm George Christopher Thomas, your radio talk show host and podcaster, and we are broadcasting and coming at you from the University of Alaska Fairbanks in College, Alaska. So now I invite you to sit back and enjoy these series of interviews and join the conversation on climate change and global warming. What is the show Join the Conversation, you ask? Well, in this era of fake news and neo-yellow journalism, this podcast focuses on using academic insight and peer-reviewed understandings to get the real story out there. By basing the conversation in a college atmosphere, the focus is a combination of learning and accuracy that lays down the foundation for comprehending complex issues and concepts. Our host, which is me, invites you to join the conversation by listening as we bring in a cadre of guests from all over America and the world. This idea of peer-reviewed academia meeting media in real time is the newest concept in journalism. So on with the show. On our first show, we had author and science journalist Michelle Nyhouse on the program. This interview is about 25 minutes. Jump in here and... Recording in progress. All right. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, thank you for joining us on Join the Conversation, our podcast and radio show um, based out of Fairbanks, Alaska, KSUA 91.5 FM. And uh, with us today, we have Michelle Rhymes with House. So, Michelle, how do you actually say your last name? Michelle Nyhouse. Nyhouse. It rhymes, with, it rhymes with my house. But does it technically, is that a real rhyme if it's Nyhouse and my house? I mean, I, I would argue with my seven-year-old about that if it rhymes or not, but it, I guess it rhymes. It, Nyhouse and my it house. Rhymes. Okay, it, it rhymes. And uh, Michelle is a, a famous writer. She writes for The Atlantic and has been profiled and uh, has been in the New York Times, the National Geographic, and uh, countless other publications as a science writer, um, which uh, I guess if you look at it, you could be one of the first science writers um, and helped coin the term. But uh, just, uh, you know, looking oh, at... Oh, no, there have been science writers around for much longer than I have been around. <laughs> but when, uh, when it comes to it becoming part of academia... Um, you were at the forefront of that? No, I wouldn't say that. All no, right. Science writing has been around for a long time. So going back to Darwin, going back to um, Isaac Newton? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I won't claim to be uh, part of that tradition. But uh, yeah, people have always, I think, uh, as long as there's been the scientific method, people have, scientists and other people have uh work to translate scientific results for the general public. So Michelle, just uh, your latest endeavor, um, your book, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, it's quite interesting that the history of uh, the conservation movement, it's called Beloved Beasts, uh, Fighting for Life in the Age of Extinction. Um, I mean, what is that? A big long book on the dodo bird and the dinosaurs or can you kind of get into that? Well, it's a history of the modern conservation movement, by which I mean uh, the, the, the movement 
over the past 150 years or so, which started when people in North America and Europe realized that humans could actually drive species extinct and not just small birds on isolated islands, but very large, very abundant species like the American bison. And um, those societies were industrializing at the time and a few people realized that human activities were the footprint of human activities was expanding and people were affecting these species that they didn't necessarily live alongside. And in some cases they were, like I said, driving these really abundant species close to extinction or over the edge into extinction. So, so that was the beginning of the modern conservation movement, which of course people have practiced conservation at a local level for thousands of years, but, but at about the end of the 1800s is when people started thinking about conservation, about protecting species on a global level. And so I wrote about how the movement has evolved uh, since then, uh, the mistakes it's made, some of its accomplishments and where it can and I think should go now, given um, all the challenges that we face. What um, would you say would be like the first species ever that uh, the modern movement in the late 1800s, uh, you know, wanted to conserve? What would be like the first species? Well, people had heard about, uh, they had heard about the extinction of, of birds on isolated islands by, uh, by explorers, by colonizers. Um, they, people had heard about the extinction of the dodo in the 1600s, but they had actually kind of forgotten about it uh, by, by the time the conservation movement started. And it was, um, it took Darwin and Lewis Carroll and, and several other uh, cultural figures in Victorian England at the time to, to bring the story of the dodo kind of out of myth and back to reality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and people realized, oh, this, what, this very strange bird was real and, it, and sailors did drive it extinct. So... So that so the story of the dodo is a bit um, is a is a bit nonlinear, uh, but people in the late 1800s in northern Europe did become aware that the great auk was going extinct in the North Atlantic. It was first first going extinct in Nova Scotia because people were hunting it for eggs and down, and then then it started to go extinct in the British Isles. Um, but I think the the decline of the bison was really the the catalyst for the movement because it was such a large, physically large species and its abundance was so legendary um, that the idea that it could disappear uh, over the course of you know just a few decades of intense market hunting really brought people up short. Um, and also it was it was seen by many people in North America as kind of a sign of national pride so to speak, mm. even though, even though, you know, um, yeah, they have US those like society was, statues. Even US society was responsible for, uh, you know, was responsible for killing it off. It was seen as a symbol of national pride of white masculinity and so forth. So, so there were a lot of things that made it a real symbol of the early conservation. Just uh, talking about the bison. I mean, if you look at, uh, let's just say, you know, some of the artwork and sculptures at the white house, it's always like, uh, you know, a cowboy killing a bison, you know, car like in the Roosevelt room there. And uh, I know, it, you know, if you go over to like the Gene Autry Museum here in Los Angeles, it's going to mm. um, completely celebrate that narrative. Um, but uh, 
as it turns out, I I was reading about bison this morning for one of my other classes. So this is perfect. They were talking about bringing bison to uh, introduce them as a part of the ecosystem on the Kenai uh, uh, National Wildlife Refuge, that they would be uh, the species that can somehow stop uh the the rapid change that's going on in alaska i mean have you heard about that where they're like okay let's bring in the bison yeah um that's something i write about a lot in my book uh, after you know the early conservationists uh brought the bison back from the you know proverbial brink of extinction in the early 1900s we could be fairly confident that the species wasn't going to go extinct, but it wasn't restored to the ecosystem. I mean, people at the time didn't have a very clear idea of how important habitat was and how important bison were to the ecosystem, the role they play for other species. So, I mean, the happy irony of the bison story for me is that those early conservationists were pretty clueless about the role of Native American tribes and First Nations in, they were uh, the role of the bison in those cultures, um, and some of some of those early conservationists were actually uh, pretty, very prejudiced in their attitude toward whose whose fault it was. They placed a lot of blame on Native American communities, mm-hmm. even though it had been white market hunters who were, you know, it was known at the time that they were primarily responsible for the decline. And so the happy irony to me is, more than a hundred years later, tribes and First Nations are taking the lead in a much broader, more meaningful biocultural restoration of the bison. So that's happening all over North America from Alaska, like you mentioned, um, really down to Northern Mexico. And to me, it's really exciting because it's it's an ecosystem restoration. You know, it's not just putting a couple of animals back on the prairie and hoping they do okay. It's it's restoring a community. And it's um, it's a cultural restoration as well. Uh, and it really speaks to the connection between humans and other species. Certainly. And uh, what about them being used as like, I mean, for lack of a better term, like a market meat, like instead of buying uh, ground beef, I mean, there is the bison, you see it right there, it's more expensive, but it's better for you. I mean, why hasn't that been developed more just out of curiosity? Yeah, I mean, there is a there for a long time. There has been a uh, a commercial business, and and there are many Native American ranchers involved in it, uh, you know, raising bison um, in captivity for commercial sale of the meat, mm-hmm. and um, and that is happening kind of alongside this ecosystem restoration. I mean, okay. that that's not it's not really con- it's. I think in some ways can be considered part of the cultural restoration, but it's not, you know, keeping, keeping bison behind fences where they can't migrate and so forth. That's not a true yeah. ecosystem res, uh, restoration. Um, but it's definitely, there's definitely cooperation between those two, you know, the commercial agriculture community and the ecosystem restoration community. And I think they, they can um, benefit each other in some ways, you know, being able to buy Buffalo meat, uh, at your local supermarket and then read about where those bison are raised and, <laughs> and how their wild cousins might be returning to Alaska. That's, you know, that's a form of conservation education. So um, H- however we get there, however yeah. we get there, if it, uh, yeah. 
for saving the world while eating bison meatballs on Super Bowl Sunday, then so be it, right? Mm -hmm. I guess that's fine. Um, Michelle, switching topics, and just because I found this interesting, you uh, were living off the grid in Colorado for 15 years. What uh, what was going on there? You just were like, that's enough of organized society. Um, I'm not really into um, what Uncle Sam has on the agenda uh, this week at the council meeting. Like, uh, 15 years is a long time to be out there. Yeah, I moved to Colorado to work for um, a publication called High Country News, which covers um, rural communities and public lands issues uh, throughout the U.S. West. And um, I'm still connected with them. They're still going strong. Uh, and so I that that publication happened to be based in a very small town called Paonia, Colorado. So I, I moved there and, and, and I stayed there. Um, even after I stepped down from full-time work for the newspaper and went freelance, um, I stayed there and my, my partner um, had built uh, a house out of straw bales and, and <laughs> it happened to be on a, on an inexpensive piece of land that was not connected to the utility, to uh, conventional utilities. So Society. We grid, but we actually lived quite, um, I would say, not conventionally, but we lived quite comfortably. Uh, we had all of the modern conveniences. People sometimes think like, oh, I must have been, you know, I must have been withdrawing from society, like you say, or I must have been, uh, you know, renouncing hot showers. But we had, uh, we had, you know, everything that you could, uh, that at least I wanted or needed. Um, and we had very low overhead, which gave us a lot of freedom. Now, uh, one of the things that comes up, uh, you know, in the classes that I take in Alaska is the transition to, you know, renewable energy, stop burning fossil fuels. You know, we only have so much of them. Everyone's ruining the earth with the CO2. Um, but what the, um, the, the thing that, that they call it, I guess, in academia is energy sovereignty. Like you are your own sovereign you know, tiny little country of energy. Were you guys like energy sovereign uh, in Western <laughs> Colorado? Like uh, you didn't need uh, Southern California Edison or um, like you weren't plugged in. There's you weren't running like a long orange cord from the garage. I mean, no, we had solar panels um, and we had uh, as many uh, solar powered houses do. We had a, um, a bank of boat batteries that we use to uh, store okay. power for you know the nighttime and for cloudy days, which fortunately there aren't too many of in in Colorado. Um, so it was it was really it was very functional. We did have uh, a gas line uh, that powered that was a we had an on-demand hot water heater for a shower and our hot water in our sink. So so we were connected to. Um, you know the energy infrastructure in that way but i i mean i i guess the energy sovereignty can be used in, in many different ways but i mean I, I think individual energy sovereignty is not if it ever was it's not necessarily my goal i i mean one of the things that i loved living the way we did off the grid but one of the things that that nagged at me about it was that it's not really for it's not really possible for everyone on earth to live like that <laughs> the way we did so you know you need to have cooperative systems um, for energy 
you know, to, to supply energy to communities of people. Would, um, would you relate it to like, you know, the people that are in like a dry cabin up in the uh, Arctic Circle? I mean, is it kind of like you were just off, not off to the side, but it, I mean, maybe in the future that, that might be something uh, you know, I mean, in Alaska, Southern California, it's probably, you, we probably wouldn't be doing it, you know, uh, along Ventura beach is having like little energy sovereign, uh, entities there. But, uh, you know, like uh, in the interior of Alaska, a, a dry cabin that's built in such a way where like, you're good, you're good. Everything's mm -hmm. going to be fine. Um, that, uh, I mean, it's just, when I think of your time in Colorado, just, uh, that's the first thing that popped into my mind was like a dry cabin above the Arctic circle and, um, enough technology where it, they are not only maybe carbon neutral, but you, you know, even who knows growing bamboo and taking carbon out of the atmosphere. But, uh, it, <laughs> yeah. It, and yeah, but, I mean, I think, go ahead. No, I'm just, uh, you know, I only have you for a little bit of time uh, and I wanted mm -hmm. to hit a, con a couple other things. Uh, these interviews go to so fast. Uh, you, I mean, you think, oh, 15 minutes or 20 minutes, I can't fill that up. And, you know, you look down and it's already over and you haven't even gotten to any of it. But um, the the wildfires, like we did an epic road trip this summer. Um, I emailed you yesterday about it where we went from, you know, L.A. to Vegas to St. George to um, like Mesa Verde in Colorado to New Mexico to Arizona. And for the first time ever, it, like the wildfires were a part of the weather forecast on the local news. And I, and yeah. I heard, you know, you said like you and your daughter were like sequestered or there was like fires in Oregon and Washington where you couldn't leave the house because the air quality oh. was so bad. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. I don't know how it is up in, uh, the Pacific Northwest for you, but can you speak to that a little bit? Like the wildfires are just getting worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think when I, you know, when I lived in Colorado, we would have, uh, and this is again, Western Colorado and the foothills of the Rockies, we would have wildfires every summer, um, but they were sporadic. And occasionally, you know, because of the wind patterns, we would get smoke from less fires in the Los Angeles basin. Um, you know, you would see the haze in the air. So it was a part of our lives, but it was not, I mean, now, like you say, it feels like a season. It feels like wildfire yeah. season um, where there's smoke in the air for weeks on end. And sometimes when the fire, you know, there have been cases over the last few years where fires have been so close and so intense that um, while we haven't been in any physical danger, thank goodness, or, or I suppose acute physical danger, we have you know, had to live with smoke um, that is really oppressive. Um, I mean, we had N95 masks before the pandemic because um, if you wanted to go outside and you wanted to walk any distance, you really needed some kind of uh, protection for your lungs. So it, it has changed the way we all live, I think, in, in ways that we almost don't notice. You know, I, I, I have been thinking over the past couple of years that, oh, now, you know, now I plan camping trips in a slightly different way than <laughs> I used to. And, um, you know, because who knows what's going to be going on with the fires. And, and my, my teenager the other day was talking about uh, their favorite season and, and saying, well, summer, you know, I don't know, there's always fires. And I was thinking that's so, you know, talk about shifting baselines, you know, summer yeah. always used to be as smoky as it is, but of course that's my, kids perception because that's what they know um 
so yeah, it's it's just you know it's one of the many ways in which our world is changing, and um, yeah, I think those of us who have been relatively insulated from the effects of climate change um, are are really are starting to feel uh, the sharp edge of um, of these changes, and and wildfires certainly one that affects everybody. Certainly, and. Uh... Michelle, I don't want to keep you too long, but just uh, let's do like some rapid fire questions to finish it up just for uh, the uh, the sake of the education part of this. Um, the conservation movement, if you had to put it on a timeline, but it starts late 1800s, dodo bird parlays into that other bird you mentioned, the, um, what was say, it, the great ouch? Yeah, the great, well, the. I would say the modern conservation movement starts in in about the the late 1800s with concern about species like the great auk, uh, concern about human caused extinction, concern about the American plains bison. Um, the bison is such a great case study uh, for a variety of reasons. One that they want to use it to fight climate change, uh, and I, I don't understand like how it actually does that. Is it uh, it, it just like grazes? nicely it's a nicely uh, it, it doesn't take too much from the salad bar i mean how does that work well uh in terms of fighting climate change i mean that's it, a bit of a stretch well no i don't think it's a stretch but it's it's um somewhat indirect in that you you know over the long term as you restore bison to a system you you are able to, you know, they fertilize the soil with their dung. Okay. They help to bring in more native species, including more native grass species, which sequester more carbon than than what's there right now. So, so eventually, you'd have, I think, more carbon stored in the in the prairie, and then you'd okay. also have a more resilient system because you've got a native, a more diverse. Um, system of native species that's able to respond and adapt more quickly to changes. And then just because I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, would you say that when the asteroid hit the earth 65 million years ago, that was just like <laughs> dramatic climate change and that's what did in the dinosaurs? Like, are we in a um, like slow asteroid of our own creating uh, the human species? I mean, is that, are we going to, I mean, the, the, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There, there's if you've seen the movie Don't Look Up, that uses an yes, asteroid as a yes. as a metaphor for climate change, and and some people have have argued, well, that's kind of a it's not doesn't quite fit as a metaphor, but um, I mean, in a very literal way, there have been five major extinctions um, that we know of in the history of the Earth, and the extinction of the dinosaurs is one of them, um, and we are, all indications are that we are headed into a sixth mass <laughs> extinction, and the difference is, with this one, the difference is that it's human-caused, um, and, you know, we didn't, we didn't bring no, that asteroid toward Earth, that was an outside that was an outside the, event. The asteroid's Fine. the industrial revolution and this burning fossil fuels. Yeah. Michelle, you are great. Uh, thank you um, for being on the show. I think I, I got a good 22, 23 minutes out of you. So uh, uh, I do appreciate you coming on. Um, in a, you know, thank you so much. If there's uh, anything you. you wanted to... Uh, discuss are we good uh, I, I think okay. I'm gonna buy the book I yeah I think you uh, Please do I, I my uh, 
I'm going to buy it for my wife for her birthday. And then we're going to both read it and have a discussion about it. Excellent. Love to hear what you think. Thanks so much, George. Yes. Have a good day, Michelle. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay. Bye. bye. Recording stopped. You have been listening to Join the Conversation, our podcast and radio show out of Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm your host, George Christopher Thomas, and I thank you for tuning in. I hope you will join the conversation next week as we travel to Juneau, Alaska to talk with Alaska State Representative Sarah Hannon about redistricting, ANWR, elections, Democrats in Alaska, and a variety of other things. Until then, keep being rad and tell your friends, family, and neighbors about this show.